0: Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books in the field. Uh, we're joined today by Amr Adli, a professor of political science at the American University of Cairo. He's the author of a brand new book, Cleft Capitalism, The Social Origins of Failed Market Making in Egypt, which was just published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Amer, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. So why don't we start just by, uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Why did you decide to write this? What do you think the major contribution of the book is for people trying to understand Egypt?
1: So uh, thanks Mark for having me. Uh, So this book started uh, as a project uh, um, almost seven years ago when I was at uh, the Center on uh, Democracy Development and the Rule of Law at Stanford. And uh, it it was mainly a project uh, that aimed at the production of a policy report. Uh, one on Egypt and Tunisia at that time. Uh, but I, I ended up with uh, an amazing uh, uh, like survey material, one that we got to do uh, in uh, 2013 and 2014, which is quite rare, of course, knowing the, the context of studying the, the region. And uh, that's why I decided to uh, use the, the, the stuff and expand on it uh, and produce this book. Uh, my aim was mainly to uh, use the, the the stuff that i encountered during the extensive fieldwork i had uh, in order to uh, revisit many of the uh, well established uh, uh, how to put it like the conventional wisdom that yeah. we have planning the troubled uh, pol- nature of political uh, of the political economy of egypt and the MENA region uh, uh, more uh, generally
0: now this this fieldwork the survey was with the kind of small enterprises in egypt right
1: uh, yes, exactly. It included small and micro enterprises, both formal as well as informal. Uh, and then, of course, I, I added uh, uh, to this more uh, qualitative uh, uh, stuff, um, uh, like mainly interviews, uh, field visits. Uh, and I, I ended up with some uh, empirics that didn't really uh, like match with uh, much of the um, uh, conventional that we have that stresses state big business relations uh, and the kind of cronyism or state capture or uh, predatory tendencies that you have among incumbents uh, as the main uh, problem it seemed to be uh, to be a, a problem with how small businesses have been related to egypt and this is something that is more uh, social rather than merely uh, or strictly political
0: so so walk us through this just a little bit then so how would you how do you describe the nature of the economic landscape in Egypt then with the uh, you have this this idea of like the three different types of businesses walk, walk the reader through that what do you expect what would they expect to see when they look at this survey of the economic landscape so um,
1: the the point the, the, the main argument is that uh, we have um, three business systems in in Egypt in reference to rules, uh, formal as well as informal, uh, uh, as well as mixes of the two, that according to which different business establishments have been operating. And the crucial thing really is how their access to uh, physical and financial capital has been regulated. And here comes the, the main point here, is that uh, the vast majority of private establishments, the ones that are strictly owned uh, by uh, private uh, individuals, uh, have uh, like uh, suffered uh, from a chronic and the structural uh, undercapitalization when it comes to access to um, bank credit given of course the uh, structure of the financial system in Egypt which is very much bank based uh, as well as access to land uh, and uh, these came up as uh, the main problems uh, that faced many of the uh, entrepreneurs that, we, uh, or that, that I, I met during the fieldwork and, and afterwards. And it, it didn't seem uh, to me that the problem was the lack of uh, a Weberian uh, like, uh, ethic uh, mm-hmm. for these people to produce uh, for market exchange and to accumulate uh, uh, profits, uh, but rather the very material uh, and I would say institutional uh, restraint of the denial of the vast majority of these private uh, actors to access capital that they could use later on to grow and uh, of course this later on uh, led me to uh, rethink uh, many of the uh, assumptions that you have in neoclassical institutionalism where market in uh, constitution is one that uh, d- depends heavily on the uh, firm establishment of private property rights because it seemed to me that the problem was rather the Access to uh, capital that could enable this growth. So the enabling of this early, uh, what we may uh, borrow from the uh, uh, like from the classical Marxism, enabling this uh, primitive uh, accumulation for the creation of market actors that could enable the rise of markets. Because it's it's very it, it ends up becoming very uh, uh, unrealistic that we imagine that we can in markets and later on engender market actors. And I, I looked into uh, the extensive uh, economic sociology literature that was produced on uh, East and Southeast Asia, including China. And there's this amazing stuff that appeared in the last 20 years uh, uh, that um, shows clearly how social and political embeddedness enabled the creation of this very thick layer of small and medium sized uh, enterprises actually across uh, the board in East and Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm in countries that we deem as developmental miracles or success stories or or whatnot. And uh, uh, from a political uh, science perspective, uh, this middle bourgeoisie, if we may use the term, was crucial in sustaining the market making uh, process uh, throughout because it did create a constituency that was uh, bigger than uh, merely uh, big businesses that are naturally, or as usually is the case in many uh, uh, cases in the global South, uh, that are attached to the state.
0: So you talk about these three different systems uh, th- that uh, that you see, like the governing, the the these different types of firms, and um, and the problem that you then see. This the the title of the book, cleft capitalism, or you know this problem of the missing middle. It's very interesting the argument you make because as you were saying before, what. At the the what you call the belly level, there's yeah. you see tons of these small medium enterprises, and but but you have this really interesting argument about how they're unable to grow into filling that niche that you just described that you see in the Asian comparative cases. So w- tell us why is that? Why is it so difficult for these like small informal businesses to uh, get access to capital to grow into these? you know, the, what, what should be that middle level of, um, of, of economic activity?
1: Um, of course, we have to be careful uh, not to adopt the rather uh, neoliberal language mm-hmm. that weights much of what we have as uh, like survival uh, ventures of these very small micro and household uh, businesses uh, and uh, to see them uh, as entrepreneurial and ones that uh, all have potential. Uh, the 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 cases that I uh, focused on uh, were rather uh, entrepreneurs that employed people. So I I used this uh, clear criteria. So these were not the self-employed. These were not okay. people who were uh, were uh, just doing whatever was out there until they could find a form of employment. And actually, the, there are hundreds of thousands of these in, uh, establishments in Egypt. Some of them are formal. Some of them are informal. Uh, But uh, as I was saying, I I, I tried to use as much as possible uh, in the survey indicators uh, in order to select this population uh, of uh, cases uh, where uh, the main concern is about this uh, market exchange for repetitive profit making. And there are quite a few there. And one of the problems here is that you have a banking system in, uh, in Egypt that is still very much controlled by the state. You have very large uh, state-owned uh, banks that still uh, hold up, up something between one-third and 40 percent of the total assets of the banking system, despite uh, rounds of uh, privatization and liberalization. Uh, and uh, even without this uh, crucial factor of uh, the direct state ownership of the of big banks, mm-hmm. uh, you have state regulation, Uh, that is both formal as well as informal. All of these networks that uh, have historically tied state-owned enterprises and then later on private businesses that are like crony uh, uh, businessmen that have been related to the successive ruling regimes in uh, in Egypt. All of these have created uh, a a regulatory uh, environment that made it extremely hard uh, for uh, those who lack either initial capital or uh, political uh, and social capital. Mm -hmm connected in order to access uh, uh, like capital. But the story is a bit bigger than just cronyism because the, the state is the biggest uh, borrower from the banking system in Egypt. And in the book, I try to show from a political economy uh, angle uh, how the uh, uh, regime uh, sustaining uh, strategies were the ones that eventually made the state the biggest uh, 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 like client uh, of uh, uh, not only the banking sector, but actually, the biggest um, uh, like entity in need of mm-hmm. access to physical, like mainly land, like desert land, and I have a chapter on desert land, but uh, as well as uh, financial uh, capital to, to sustain a different kind of, um, like a more of a state-dependent um, uh, constituency. And uh, this is one that inadvertently, so it's, it's not that the state made or adopted strategies to keep. Uh, uh, small and micro businesses out or in order to prevent them from growing uh, into constituting the middle bourgeoisie that I was talking about. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not that they are villains, really. It's, it's more of a tragedy, really, where you have these limited resources and then a certain political coalition that dominated the process of market making in Egypt. It defined how market uh, making should proceed. And this has been very much related uh, to or catering for uh, uh, the state-dependent uh, uh, constituencies. Uh, many of them were, were simply not uh, cronies or or captors, but rather uh, uh, low-paid uh, 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 like civil servants and their families, etc. But this is how the state ended up with a chronic fiscal crisis that could also that could only be uh, sustained by uh, borrowing from the banking sector, and this created these rules that raised the barriers pretty much to uh, the uh, like smaller. Uh, businesses that
0: were completely cut off, not only economically but politically as well. The the, the numbers that you cite about uh, where Egypt stands in terms of um, in terms of these kinds of loans to small enterprises is really quite striking, even in comparison to other MENA countries. Yeah. Um, so then you get to the other, like the second level of it, which in some ways is even more interesting. This is what you call the dandy uh, uh, sector where that I think is where the uh, this argument you're making about uh, the nature of state capture and cronyism not really explaining things. That's where that's where to me, at least your argument really hinges is on the evolution of these large private enterprises, which you don't see as fitting that model of state capture. So explain those to us, where do they come from? And how do they operate within Egypt's political economy? So I,
1: I'm, I, I'm being critical of, of cronyism, but that is not to say that cronyism does not exist in Egypt or in MENA, or not to say that it is not a problem. I'm just saying that it is not the problem right. behind uh, market making. And uh, I, I, I could spot uh, through this uh, second business uh, uh, system that some rules were not very inimical to uh, uh, market actors, that did not organically or solely depend on their connections to the state in order to be able to grow and to accumulate capital. And we have actually quite a few cases of uh, big enterprises that uh, might have been involved in some uh, crony uh, activity or rent seeking, no doubt, because that is something that is across the board. If, If people that are familiar with literature on uh, the, how uh, uh, market making has proceeded in the past four decades, not only in Asia, in Latin America, in East and Central uh, Europe as well. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's part of how things are, that big businesses are close to the state. I don't think that this is even something that is confined to the global south. I think that it applies pretty much to the global north as well, uh, even though it, it, it happens through uh, other institutional media. And that's why it's no news that big business is uh, usually uh, uh, close to the state rent seeking is quite rampant, it's just regulated uh, differently. And that's why I'm not fixated on this. So uh, what I tried to show uh, using some empirics as well, uh, uh, depending on the few publicly traded uh, enterprises is that uh, we have some genuine market activity that, is, that has been out there uh, that does not uh, uh, strictly fall under uh, 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 what I see as a simplified account of uh, all of these being captors or all of these being cronies. That is not to, 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 to uh, dismiss the fact that we have uh, some market actors, or not even market actors, I mean economic actors, that enjoy monopolistic positions that simply are predatory. Uh, th- th- I'm not saying so. I'm just saying that we do have other more genuine market actors. And I tried as much as possible to show this classification in a very nuanced way, because I'm, 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 I'm not there to destroy the chronic capitalism literature at all. I'm just trying to uh, like be uh, critical by showing its limitations by engaging with it uh, rather in a, in a constructive manner. I'm not trying to dismiss it or to destroy it completely because I ironically, I, I have engaged with it rather positively in, in the first part of my career. I have a, like seven <laughs> articles that are cited in the book and then that, are, that
0: I critique together with the other literature. Well, there's nothing like a good auto-critique. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when thinking about the politics of this, um, the chapter or chapters where you talk about the Nazif government and, this, uh, and, and its attempts at, uh, cr- at reforming and restructuring the Egyptian economy, that seems to be where a lot of the trends you discuss really come together. Tell me about the Nazif government and its, uh, what it was trying to do and how it did or didn't work in terms of reshaping the Egyptian political economy. So the the Nazif government, of course, has become quite
1: notorious because this was the last cabinet uh, under uh, Mubarak uh, that, uh, well, technically, of course, we have another one that followed during (laughs) that. But this was the cabinet that witnessed the 2011 uh, popular revolution that removed Mubarak. And the Nazif government has been related to what was called the Succession uh, Project, uh, the political attempt at passing power from Mubarak Sr. to uh, his son, Mubarak Jr. And uh, I, I gave this account that uh, for many Egyptian um, colleagues of mine it was rather uh, like heretical. It, it was a bit of a heresy because uh, I, what what I tried to show was that uh, these were not simply uh, uh, corrupt uh, people that were self-serving. They were definitely self-serving, by the way. And I, I give examples that it's, I'm not saying that they were not. I'm just saying that there was a bigger political, as well as an economic project, because this was the very first time since 1952 that we have a, a, a big businessmen that are so much politically empowered to the extent that they dominate uh, decision-making in certain areas. They were not the ones that dominated the state because they had other co- components of the state elite uh, uh, that they had to contend with, and they eventually lost their battle against these people. But uh, or the, their shaky partnership eventually uh, fell through. But what what I'm saying here is that, uh, neoliberalism was a serious ideology for these people, and many of the transformations that were happening were an Egyptian variant of the broader neoliberal transformation. And this is how we should see uh, uh, that uh, that political uh, project that uh, eventually, of course, uh, uh, either, I don't know, either by, like, I'm not sure whether the revolution was against it per se, but definitely, uh, these people and how they were related to the state was uh, one cause uh, behind uh, why people were so much dissatisfied with Mubarak, especially during the last uh, decade. But uh, you have a subtitle uh, in, in the chapter uh, on the Nazi government where I'm saying under the neoliberal sun. These people were under the neoliberal sun, they were uh, drawn pretty much either from uh, globalized big businesses. Uh, or they came from uh, technocrats who worked previously for the World Bank, for the IMF, for investment banks in London and New York. So uh, these were part of a globalized financial elite uh, to a great extent uh, of the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, when things were very promising before, of course, the crash of 2008. So I tried to put things in in perspective, and uh, there's no doubt that their project eventually uh, uh, faltered. It, it, It failed miserably. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to uh, ad- address it in uh, the bigger context of uh, how uh, market making started in Egypt under Sadat and how it proceeded in these uh, uh, waves, without any uh, or, or without or, or trying as much as possible to refrain from teleological readings.
0: It's difficult to, to disentangle the, uh, the economic pro- or the political economic project from the uh, Gamal succession project. Um, but but if we try. What exactly is it that this global financial elite, you know, connected government was trying to do? What, what would they have done to Egypt if they had succeeded, and why did they fail? Well, I, I
1: think, of, first, this is an extremely interesting question, and unfortunately, we don't have a very conclusive answer to it because it's, it's quite counter, uh, uh, right, like, right. Uh, and it's, it's problematic, inherently problematic to, come on, uh, to, to come across an answer. I think that these people were involved in a process of uh, liberating as many uh, assets as, as they could from the earlier bureaucratic uh, controls. And uh, I tried to show in the chapter uh, how banks, bank sector, the bank sector reform uh, uh, proceeded together with how they uh, re-regulated uh, the land management system in Egypt. And they gave themselves the right of first access, if we may uh, uh, use the uh, meaning that they were very big market actors. Uh, there was a, a considerable um, a confusion of uh, or conflict of interest, to, 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 to say the least. Uh, and that's why we, it's a story that is full of, the, of, of cronyism and rent seeking. But what I'm saying is that this was this is one part of the story. The bigger story is that these people were uh, pushing for. The remodeling of how state market relations uh, would uh, be uh, made by privatizing uh, state-owned assets to a great extent, and reintegrating Egypt into the global division of labor through the expansion of uh, non-oil exports and the uh, attraction of foreign direct investment. And by the way, they made some uh, successes on these two fronts, especially if you compare the situation in Egypt, not nowadays, not after the COVID-19 crisis, but even before, like uh, as of 2016, uh, after the adoption of the IMF uh, program, uh, the Nazif people uh, 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 were, were like managed to uh, do things uh, uh, much better. They, 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 uh, they, they were uh, much more empowered. They represented uh, uh, an elite that came originally outside uh, uh, of the state. And uh, they, uh, uh, of course, lived in a world where the hegemony of neoliberalism was much better asserted than uh, it was after 2008.
0: And yet they still had basically nothing to say or nothing to do for this visibility class, which makes up the small and medium enterprises that you began with. Well, I, I
1: completely agree with you. And this, this, was, what, what, this was their downfall, because uh, what eventually these people ended up with, having a political project, they could only bet on uh, the taking over of the very core of, the, of, of, of state power, which is in the top executive. And that's why they married themselves to the succession project of pushing uh, or pulling uh, Gamal Mubarak into the position of the presidency. And, and this proved to be the least popular part or the most unpopular part. And uh, one of the ba- basic reasons of the 2011 popular revolution, by the way. So uh, I think that this was more of a tragedy because they did not inherit uh, the, the kind of institutional channels that once linked the uh, uh, post-independence uh, or post-colonial state in Egypt with the broader base of the private sector. And uh, ironically, uh, this is a legacy from Nasser's time. And I, 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 I tried to go in the book through some historical uh, phases. And I think this is, uh, or this, that, like there's a, an element of path dependency here, and that uh, they, had, they didn't have the, 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 the resources to establish these uh, institutions and they did not inherit them. But in many of the earlier cases uh, where, uh, or the other cases in Asia, for instance, where they ended up with uh, a robust uh, middle uh, uh, and small uh, uh, private sector that was capable of competing, of producing and of uh, creating employment, uh, they inherited more favorable institutional uh, settings. So the literature on China, for instance, uh, traces some uh, legacies uh, of the Maoist uh, era uh, about how, how decentralization and then the fiscal, like allowed fiscal federalism later on under Deng Xiaoping. So this kind of institutional uh, positive uh, assets uh, uh, that are uh, like uh, out there uh, that could have been reused or reemployed in a different way were, were simply missing in the case of Egypt.
0: Now, one thing that, um, speaking of missing, uh, one thing that um, I was looking for a bit more in the book, and I didn't see as much as I expected, and I suspect perhaps intentionally, is the role of the military in the economy. And I was curious where that fits. And you talk about it in terms of land in the desert and that sort of thing. Um, But- Where does the military fit into this, especially in the post-2011 period, as we've seen them moving into many of these sectors? Um, What does that do to your reading of what Egypt's political economy now is? Uh, This part is missing, you are right.
1: Uh, But it it mainly has to do with the time framing of the book, the one that stops at 2011. Exactly, right. To the the roots, and that's why the the, the subtitle of the book is The Origins. Uh, So I I, I tried to go back to the 1970s and, and 80s. Uh, which is not a very uh, heavy uh, or extensively studied uh, period uh, when it comes to uh, early history of, uh, of, 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 ca- of the capitalist transformation or market making in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, however, uh, there are some features of the current political economic order uh, that appear in, in the chapter on land, for instance, uh, where you have uh, top-down bureaucratic uh, control. Uh, of the uh, planning of land allocation. And of course, I've dealt with uh, or I'm dealing with some features of the political economy, uh, uh, current political economic setting in, in Egypt in, in other uh, uh, writings like articles, papers, etc. Uh, so, uh, however, I, I do think that the book might offer uh, actually some good answers uh, to uh, uh, the, the, the current political economy. So the the part about the uh, uh, intra-elite competition that existed on the redefinition of how the state is to be related to uh, uh, the market, the question of the integration of Egypt into the uh, global division of labor, I think that uh, all all of these uh, are uh, tackled uh, in a way that uh, might uh, uh, suggest uh, headways into understanding the current uh, uh, incumbents, and how they have been answering these uh, these questions using very different tools.
0: so how does how would that work then in terms of you've got the belly class, the dandy class, um is is it mostly the dandy class which would be being challenged by the by this shifting state role?
1: Uh, yes, I, I believe so. I, I, I believe that this is the case because, uh, you don't have much uh, difference so like uh, uh, much change happening to how the broader base of the private sector has been related to the state. Right. But much uh, of, the, of the change that has been happening was rather about the reconfiguration uh, of uh, big business state relations. So yeah. you have uh, new businesses that have been emerging. You have other uh, big businesses that were uh, politically empowered under Mubarak. And nowadays they are not, they are expected to play the role of uh, junior uh, uh, partners to uh, the state and specifically to the military, which is the one that is uh, uh, like now in charge of uh, rather a statist uh, uh, development, uh, a very odd mix of statism and developmentalism on the one hand with neoliberalism on the other. Um, So um, I I think that it's like what happened after 2011 and after 2016 with the IMF program is not a complete rupture uh, with what is there in the book uh, and the experience before. Uh, uh, Rather,
0: there are very strong elements of continuity. Now, one thing that I really like about the book is the way that you consistently throughout look for comparative perspectives from the global South. I think it really is... um, it's a really good thing. I think that uh, too many uh, kind of Middle East politics books, um, they, they draw their comparisons from within the region exclusively. So I, I like the way you look at Latin America, you look at Asia, East Asia, uh, for, for, the, for comparative perspective. And by doing that, you, you're able to say at multiple points throughout the book, that Egypt could have gone in a different direction; that it wasn't inevitable that uh, it that it developed the way that it did. When you step back and you look at, uh, at at the book and you look at Egypt's trajectory in that comparative perspective, do you think that the that it's too late now? Like, have have those doorways been closed forever, or are there still lessons from looking at this in comparative perspective that you think could uh, point a path toward really fundamentally reshaping Egypt's political economy? I mean, is it too late or is, Are there still possible branching pathways? Well, uh, I, I know That's a tough question, but uh, that's that's a very tough question because
1: I, I think it's too late uh, if if we are uh, uh, aiming at uh, putting Egypt on a on trajectory that has been defined pretty much on uh, like this globalization or neoliberal globalization or in neoliberal globalization terms, because uh, the overall project uh, on a global level is not doing very well. Uh, not only because of the COVID nineteen, but like the, the the trade war between the U.S. and China, the rise of the new right that is pretty much anti-globalist, the 2008 meltdown. So. Uh, these are uh, ones that affect uh, pretty much not only uh, the opportunities uh, that are uh, available uh, for a country like Egypt, a middle-sized uh, uh, country that is a rule taker at the end of the day, it's not a rule maker, uh, but at the same time, uh, they also redefine many of the restraints. Uh, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's it's too late to do what uh, whatever. I'm just saying that uh, it's a bit um, hard to imagine how things would proceed based on, on what was there not only before 2011 but I would say before 2008 as well uh, but uh, is there a way out um, I do believe there is a way out uh, because uh, not because I'm, I'm an optimist I'm just saying that uh, that's the, the whole reason why we have development studies I mean otherwise we would right. all be very uh, like a, just a bunch of cynics who are uh, <laughs> writing stuff and discussing them with each other so um, um, I'm, uh, I, I believe that looking at other cases, and that was the whole idea behind pushing the comparison beyond the Middle East and North Africa, um, that uh, uh, yes, we, we need to put it, to put uh, the, the region uh, in uh, uh, the, the perspective of the global south in general. This is not a unique region by any means. We have lots to share with Africa, with Sub-Saharan, what, what people call sub-Saharan Africa. We have a lot to share with South Asia. We have a lot to share with Latin America with Central America, and we, we have lots of lessons to draw so that we don't, we don't eventually sink into uh, disguised assumptions of essentialism or, or uniqueness.
0: Yeah, and that's a real strength of the book, and I really appreciated seeing that throughout. Uh, Amr, I wanna thank you for joining us. We've been speaking with Amr Adli of the American University of Cairo about his brand new book, Cleft Capitalism, The Social Origins of Failed Market-Making in Egypt. Uh, Amr, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for having me.